this week on the Back Table Podcast. Because it's a couple's disease. There's no point in raising the libido in one partner and not the other, because that is a setup for a conflict. If you're going to keep both libidos low, that's fine. Leave them both low. That's okay. If you want them both high, but you don't want one high and one low. And so we have been treating couple. We, I don't like, you know, I think by treating one patient and not asking about the couple, you're missing the boat, you know? Hello, everyone. I will come back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. Kaisatrex, an innovative oral testosterone undeconate, is FDA-approved for men with low or no testosterone. Kaisatrex's unique formulation has demonstrated liver safety, and favorable safety parameters. Kaisatrex is the first all-catch testosterone product available at select specialty pharmacies and available for in-office dispensing. For more information, go to www.kaisatrex.com. That's www.kyzatrex.com. Now, back to the show. The host of Silvius, as your host with this week, I am happy to introduce our guest, Dr. Mohit Kera. He received his medical degree from U the University of Texas Medical School at San Antonio, and then completed a urologist residency in the Scott Department of Urology at Baylor College of Medicine. After completing his urology residency, he went on to complete one-year fellowship in male reproductive medicine and surgery also at Baylor. Currently, he's professor in the Scott Department of Urology at Baylor College of Medicine, and he holds the F. Brandley Scott Chair in Urology. Dr. Kera specializes in male and female sexual dysfunction, men's health, and hormone replacement therapy. Dr. Kera also serves as the director of the Laboratory of Andrology Research, the medical director of the Baylor Executive Health Program, and the medical director of the Scott Department of Urology. He has also served as president of the Sexual Medicine Society of North America. So, Mo, welcome to the back table. Jose, thank you so much for the invitation. Now, you have a, a lot of hats in the department, right? I think I have quite a few. So, today we're going to talk about mainly about testosterone, low testosterone, hypogonadism, uh, the pathophysiology of those patients and, and what to look for when we're seeing those patients in the office. So, Mo, can you define hypogonadism? Yeah, so hypogonadism essentially means a man having a low serum testosterone value. The number you want to remember that we use is 300 nanogram per deciliter. I have a little problem using that number. I think that it's not really fair that we pick one number for everyone in the world. And if you're below that number, you feel bad and below, above that number, you feel good. But the number we use is 300. Uh, we were involved in some international guidelines that have pushed that number to 350. And we'll, we can kind of get into that. But if a man has a low testosterone and he has signs and symptoms of low testosterone, then that patient suffers from hypogonadism. So not just only the patient with testosterone less than 300, you need the symptoms also. You bring up a very good point. So listen, so I have many patients that come in and let's talk about those symptoms. So low energy, low libido, erectile dysfunction, decreased muscle mass, increased fat deposition, some depression, poor sleep. These are very common symptoms in men who have low testosterone. The most sensitive, specific symptoms are the sexual symptoms, meaning libido and erectile dysfunction. So if a man comes in with a testosterone level of 450 and he has every sign and symptom of low testosterone, you cannot treat him because he doesn't have the testosterone value. Conversely, if he comes in with a level of 250 and says, I feel great, I wouldn't treat him either. He really has to have both signs and symptoms and a low serum testosterone value. And you mentioned that patient with increased adipose tissue. And I have seen in the practice, sometimes some people are used to maybe low testosterone and they don't know it versus the patient that has that decrease more abruptly in the past six months and, and they will see it. So are you seeing those patients that have just constant low T and they just ride life because they're, that's what they know? Yes, if you think about the symptoms I mentioned, low energy, low libido, ED, increased fat, decreased muscle. Many men say, I'm just getting older, right? This is just part of aging. But the reality is they don't realize that they suffer from a condition 
that can be treated and help to reverse many of these signs and symptoms. So you're absolutely right. I think many people just accept it without getting tested to see if there's a potential treatment option. And I'm, I'm sure you see it in your office also. Sometimes the wife is actually the one bringing the, the husband, hey, I have seen it. And, and then the husband, either they don't want to talk about it. They, they, like you mentioned, they think that it's normal with age. But most of the time, I think they're just embarrassed. Yes. I think, you know, I talk about this many times. I call it suffering in silence. And, you know, I know we're talking about testosterone, but when you talk about ED, erectile dysfunction, peronies, low testosterone, many men are truly embarrassed to talk about sexual dysfunction and their symptoms. We know that the majority of men who suffer really suffer in silence. They think there's no treatment option or that their primary care doctor won't take them seriously. So I'll tell you, my wife is a, a family practitioner. And I said to her, do you screen for ED and low testosterone? And she says, you know, to be honest with you, I have to go through diabetes, hypertension, sleep apnea. My patients are very sick. It's hard to get through everything in a short period of time. So I think a lot of physicians don't go through when it gets to sexual dysfunction, don't get to sexual dysfunction on the, on the chain. And, and just like you mentioned, I, I always ask the patient, hey, are you having low libido? Because like you mentioned, most of the patients are just suffering in silence and they come because of BPH, even a kidney stone. And when you start asking the patient, hey, yeah, I, I think, or sometimes even in the office, they can, they can see a, a, an ad mm -hmm. for testosterone and, and they can see the symptoms, they can read it and they, they hey, doctor, I, I think I have low testosterone. Many times patients are almost relieved that you ask them. If you just say, Mr. Smith, do you suffer from erectile dysfunction? They will say, actually, I do. There's almost like, finally, someone's asking me, tell me about your libido, which is not commonly asked. Now, conversely, many patients do come in specifically for those symptoms. They say, look, I got ED or I have low libido. But I would tell you that many men just suffer from silence when they really don't have to. And going back to those symptoms or prior to that, in terms of the testosterone pathway, can you just give us a review of how testosterone works in the body? Yes. So remember the testosterone comes from cholesterol. That's the basic building block for testosterone. And so remember that the majority of testosterone in men comes from the testicles. Roughly 90% will come from the testicles. Roughly 10% will come from the adrenal glands. As men get older, there is a slight decline in testosterone production from the testicles. And then testosterone, remember, is broken down into two very important things. 0.3% of testosterone is broken down into estradiol. That's why you can get gynecomastia. And six to 8% is broken down into dihydrotestosterone, which has been implicated for BPH and uh, hair loss. So it's very important to know the breakdown because many times patients will get anastrozole when they get testosterone. They'll give them finasteride. They'll give them medications to block the conversion. That is the essential pathway for testosterone. But remember that testosterone, when I first started my practice, I thought that there was this thing called andropause, meaning if you get older, men's testosterone goes down because they're just getting older and they're gonna suffer from low testosterone. But now we know that's not true. Andropause is really not a true entity. Men who are very healthy do not see a significant decline in their total testosterone levels as they get older. It is the acquisition of comorbid conditions, diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, and obesity is one of the notorious that drops their testosterone as they age. So getting these comorbid conditions drop it. It's not aging in itself. Now, aging does do one thing that's important. We'll get into this is that aging does increase SHBG. And as the SHBG goes up, your free testosterone will go down as you get older. But we don't see significant declines in total testosterone in healthy men. So you do see patients that are completely healthy that have low testosterone. I do, but remember, there are many other factors that can drop their T, right? For example, stress, sleep. So remember, you, you sleep deprive someone that will, uh, five nights in a row, you can see a 15% uh, decline right off the bat in their serum testosterone levels. Uh, I think that, so that's important. So there are many things that can uh, injury, traumatic brain injury. There's a lot of things you can see in healthy people that can still go down, but the majority, over 65%, there was a wonderful study by Dr. Crone that came out of Italy, 65% of hypogonadism fell into three buckets. If it was secondary hypogonadism, it was obesity, metabolic syndrome, or diabetes. 65% was right there. And you mentioned sleep deprivation. What about patients, and I always find these patients very hard to treat, patients that work at night? Yes, it's that, difficult. It's very yeah. difficult because uh, the shift workers tend to have lower serum testosterone values because of this fragmented sleep. 
And so, but it's a risk factor. Now, it's not the whole thing. Sleep is just, I tell the patient, it's a pie. Sleep is a part of the pie. It's not everything. The four pillars I tell everyone they have to focus on is diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. Again, it's diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. I don't have a pill on the planet stronger than diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And that can help with many things. Just forget testosterone, diabetes, hypertension, joint pain, depression. I mean, I can go on and on. I tell patients, 50% of this is you helping me with diet, exercise, sleep, and stress reduction. And I'll manage the hormones. And together, this team approach is very effective. But just giving someone testosterone and they keep, you know, not exercising, eating terribly, smoking, doesn't help as much, you know? And, and that's a fair point, a good point, actually. Yeah. And I always tell patients, hey, you, you need to do it yourself also. I mean, this will help you. For example, the patient tells me, I, I don't even have energy to do exercise. Well, this might give you some, but you need to start doing it. Yeah. You cannot expect everything to be done from testosterone. Yeah. You know what I've been focusing on and paying a lot of attention to lately is weight loss. Weight loss has this very strong bi-directional relationship with testosterone. So there was a great study called the European Male Aging Study. And what they showed was that if you lost 10% of your body weight, you can see almost 100 nanogram per deciliter increase in serum testosterone. If you lose 15% of your body weight, you can get almost 250 nanogram per deciliter increase in your serum testosterone. And the converse is true. So if you gain weight, you'll see a decline as well in testosterone. So the best studies are with the bariatric surgery literature. When patients do bariatric surgery, they typically can see almost a 250 to 300 nanogram per deciliter increase in their serum testosterone. So I do feel that patients who lose weight not only benefit from increasing in natural testosterone, weight loss actually helps with a lot of the symptoms that we see with hypogonadism, meaning energy, I mean, energy being the most. You tell someone to lose 15, 20, 30 pounds, their energy level goes up. They sleep better. So we focus really heavy on weight loss. So you have that patient tells you, Mo, Dr. Kara, I have symptoms of, of, of low T. What's the next step? What, what labs do you order? Sure. So typically we'll check a testosterone and I do check a free testosterone initially. I mean, the guidelines will say just check a total testosterone. If the total testosterone is low, then you're supposed to repeat the total testosterone and check other labs, meaning LH, FSH, prolactin. I'm at an academic institution, so I do like to check other parameters like estradiol and DHT. So those are my go-to. But then how do you know it's really due to low testosterone? Maybe he has hypothyroid, you know, so maybe there's other things going on. So I do check TSH and we do use uh, peptides a lot. So I'll check an IGF-1 to check the growth hormone level as well. And then I, I always check a vitamin D and a B12 just to make sure that they're in check as well. So those are kind of my go-to labs uh, when I know that someone is hypogonadal. I will check a PSA and a hematocrit because I, if I'm gonna start them on testosterone, I gotta make sure the PSA is okay. And I wanna make sure they don't have uh, a baseline elevation of erythrocytosis before I start them on it. Because again, erythrocytosis can be an issue. You mentioned vitamin D and I, I mean, we always talk, I mean, in Florida, uh, a lot of sun, and we always were taught in medical school that vitamin D, sun exposure. But I see a lot of workers that, I mean, they're always outside and, and I see a lot of patients with low, low vitamin D. Do you replace them? I mean, if you see a patient with a vitamin D? Yeah, I do. I think that, you know, there's several reasons. It helps with immunity. It helps with the testosterone production, endogenous testosterone production as well. And so if the levels are low, but sometimes people just don't absorb, you'll start at 1,000 units a day, 2,000, you have to go to 5,000, 10,000. And then eventually you just may use the, 50, the prescription version, which is 50,000 once a week, just to get the levels up. But I do think it's important. Uh, I do like vitamin B12. I think it can be helpful as well, just to, you know, when people are talking about fatigue. But those, you know, those are the ones I check, but I, I still go back to, I say, look, if you're really tired, the number one cause of fatigue is not low testosterone. The number one cause of fatigue is poor sleep. And it's not the amount of hours that you're sleeping. It's how efficient you're sleeping as well. So for example, Jose, if you went to bed last night and you slept eight hours, but you were only 30% efficient, and I went to bed last night and I only slept five hours, but I was 80% efficient. I will feel better, you know, the efficiency. So it's really important, you know, that people get sleep and it's not just the amount of hours they're sleeping there. So sleep is very important. The number one, I say, I can give you all the testosterone you want, but if you don't sleep, you will be tired. There's nothing I can do about it. You know, you got, you have to sleep. And if you want to sleep better, control your sugars, don't eat three hours before you go to bed, work out for me, manage your stress, and it all comes together. Each one of those four pillars play off each other. 
And you mentioned sleep, and, and, and that can be a separate podcast on its own, because not everybody is, is the same. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, some people, I, I, for example, for me, I wake up every day at six, but if I wake up at seven, I'll feel much better, mm -hmm. even if I sleep less. Yeah. For some reason, that extra hour, yeah. because of the line of work that we do, we, I have to wake up earlier. You know, there's been some interesting studies at looking at that. You know, there was a really interesting study looking at testosterone production and that if you, if you deprive patients of sleep for the first half of the night versus the second half of the night, and if you deprive them, say, from 10 to 2, but then let them sleep from 2 to 6, they don't see a significant decline in their testosterone values. But if you let them sleep from 10 to 2 and you deprive them from 2 to 6, they could see. So I, I think there may be some data to suggest that the second half of the night may be more important than the first half of the night, you know? Probably. The thing is that the, the way we live doesn't yeah. change. I mean, yeah, that's true. The, the, the kids go to school at eight, I, I, so, so you need to be, so the, the entire society will have to change for, for, for one yeah. to be better, if that's the case. So you mentioned low, uh, total T, that's in the guidelines, but what about free T? Patients that have normal low testosterone, uh, total testosterone, but symptom, symptomatic and low free testosterone. Yeah, so nothing, the body, all the body you really cares about is your free testosterone. Right, that's what that is the most sensitive indicator of symptoms. So what happens invariably is if there are patients who have a normal testosterone, let's say it's 400, but they have a very elevated SHBG, the free testosterone will be low. And so in that patient, I would definitely treat them. So the guidelines will say if someone is borderline, they still have symptoms, then you may wanna consider getting a free T. I think free T is very important. We check it on all patients. If someone is symptomatic, they have a normal testosterone, but the free T is low, we will treat them. Now you can, there are many ways to get the free T. I prefer to calculate my own free T. And you can use these calculators that are online. They're called free testosterone calculator. Essentially, all you do is you put in a total testosterone, you put in SHBG, and you hit calculate, and it will give you a free testosterone value. So I think the free T is a great uh, indicator of symptoms, and it should be checked in patients, particularly if they have normal testosterone values but they're still symptomatic. I just want to make a, one other comment because I said this at the beginning, it makes no sense to have one number for all of us. I have patients that walk in at 250 and they feel great. I can have patients walk in at 400 and they have every sign and symptom of low testosterone. So many years ago, and we're still doing this, every time someone comes in for hypogonadism, we collect their blood and I have, a, I have a lab and we send the blood to the lab and we look for something called CAG repeats. CAG repeats is the sensitivity of the androgen receptor. And it makes sense. We showed this earlier on. Those patients with very sensitive androgen receptors don't require as much testosterone to get symptomatic improvement. Those patients with insensitive androgen receptors, longer CAG repeats, do require more testosterone. And that makes sense. All of us are very different. So we can't expect uh, everyone to uh, have symptomatic improvement at the same level. So that's why when we treat patients, I try to put them in the upper quartile of normal. So still in the normal range, but the upper quartile, because sometimes a patient comes in, you start at 250, and they say, oh, he's at 350, he's normal, so must be something else. No, raise that patient up to the upper quartile, and you may be able to salvage some of these patients that you thought were failures to testosterone. What about that patient with total testosterone 400, low, uh, low free T? Also, you will go up to the 800 to 750, 100s? So I look at the free T, I look at the range, you know, the range, it depends on what you're using, five to 25, so you can go up to 20. You can use 20 as your gauge. So sometimes you may have to get super physiologic on the total T to get the free T into a, a good range. But I don't wanna say that someone is a failure to testosterone unless I've given them a chance. Now, let's say I did get the total testosterone or the free testosterone into the upper quartile of normal. Look, those symptoms I explained to you could happen from a lot of things. I mean, depression can cause it. I mean, there's a lot of things that can cause, but you wanna at least check off that you've optimized the T. He still has symptoms. Now go look for other causes, you know? Yeah, like you mentioned the symptoms also. I see the opposite. Patients with depression, for example, they've been treated with medications and, and, and what they had was low T all along. And when you started treating them with the, with the testosterone, they feel great, doctor, thank you. And those patients do, do really good. Yeah, that's a really important point. So many years ago, I ran this registry called the TRIAS registry. It was a testosterone registry. 
and was it was a hundred sites over the country, eight hundred fifty patients, and we found that those patients with low testosterone, ninety three percent of them had some degree of depression. It's a lot, whether it be mild, moderate, or severe. And when we treated these patients, the severe depression reduced by eightfold. You know, seventeen percent down to three percent or two point five percent. So it was a it was a big reduction. And I am not advocating that we use testosterone to treat men for major depressive disorder. But what I do advocate when I give this talk to family practitioners or to psychiatrists are that when you have patients with depression, you should at least check the testosterone level, right? Because it can maybe in some ways be synergistic uh, with the SSRI in treating these men for depression. And like you mentioned, SSRIs will then give you other sexual side effects with might. Yeah. Just can perpetuate the, the symptoms. Like you mentioned, the suffering silence. Yeah. But you know what's interesting in the study with the TRIA study? Even patients who are on an SSRI, when we get, we use the PHQ-9 questionnaire, which is a depression questionnaire. Those patients who are on SSRIs, many of them saw significant improvement in depression scores just by adding the testosterone. So I do think there may be a role with testosterone and depression. The other thing I want to ask in terms of estrogen, patients that have hyperestrogen in the body, in the blood, will you start them on an astrosonus or any other aromatase inhibitor? I think that's a really good question because if you go to a lot of these testosterone clinics, a lot of the people that prescribe, what they'll do is they'll start patients on testosterone and an aromatase inhibitor immediately. And that never made sense to me because you don't know what their estrogen is. What you should do is you should manage the estrogen. My sweet spot is typically 30 to 50. I like to keep it in that range. So if a patient has an estrogen level of 40, why would you start them on aromatase inhibitor, right? It doesn't make any sense. So first check the estrogen, decide if it's elevated. If it's elevated, you can consider giving them a aromatase inhibitor, but just give them enough to drop them into the normal range. Don't shut them down to zero. Because when I was a fellow in 2006, we actually gave men aromatase inhibitors one milligram a day. We thought, look, men, why do they need estrogen? Just give them testosterone and, and they don't need estrogen. But we found out many years later that men need the estrogen. Estrogen is actually critical for sexual function and libido. A wonderful study out of the New England Journal of Medicine by Dr. Finkelstein showed that he felt that estrogen was the main part of the benefit that patients are experiencing, not the testosterone. So I think that you should check the estrogen. If it's elevated, use small doses. I typically will use half a milligram, maybe even 0.25 milligram, and then once a week, and then recheck. And if I need to go 0.25 twice a week, but don't shut that estrogen down. And a patient that has, for example, estrogen in the 200s and then low testosterone, will you do an astrosol first, see if the testosterone goes up on its own? I mean, with the medication, or would you treat testosterone as well? The problem is an astrosol is monotherapy is not a very good therapy for. Okay. So now we're going to probably talk about this, but there are several ways to raise endogenous testosterone. And if we talk about medications, there's only three. There's anastrozole, there's HCG, and there's clomiphene citrate. There's three medications. And if a patient has an elevated LH and FSH before you start treating them, then clomid and HCG are less effective because the way clomid and HCG work is they raise the LH, but now it's already elevated. So you have a patient with testis failure. The best example is a patient with Kleinfelters. So they have elevated LH and FSH. So in these patients, anastrozole tends to work better because what you're trying to do is not make the patient produce more testosterone. You're trying to block the conversion from testosterone to estrogen to keep more testosterone around. Now, you got to be careful. Long-term usage of anastrozole, say for greater than two years, can lead to some risk for osteoporosis, osteopenia, because you're shutting down their estrogen completely. So I typically reserve the anastrozole for patients who have elevated LH and FSH initially uh, as monotherapy, but it's not a great monotherapy for low T. And you mentioned the patient of that is looking for endogenous testosterone instead of exogenous. What patient will be will fall into this category other than a patient wanting to preserve fertility, right? That's the biggest one. I can't tell you how many, I've, I, Jose, I know you've seen this. I can't tell you how many patients have come in and they have been on testosterone, they've been getting injections, and they were never told it could cause infertility. And then now they say, now I want to have a, a child. I tell them that we can reverse it that paper came out of our institution. We showed that you can reverse it, but it can take three to seven months and not everyone was reversed, although the majority were. Our protocol for this is basically tapering the testosterone. You don't want to stop at cold turkey because they feel lousy. We taper it every two weeks all the way down to zero. And then we give them HCG, 3,000 units, three times a week 
to try to bring back their endogenous testosterone. If they're trying to have children, then I will also give them gonal F at the same time. Gonal F is expensive, so if they can't afford the gonal F, then I'll give them Clomid. So Clomid or gonal F with the HCG. And that tends to work quite well. And typically these patients will recover anywhere from three to seven months of the spermatogenesis. But I found that if you don't taper the testosterone over time, they tend to relapse sometimes because they just feel so lousy they want to get back on the T. Patients, for example, that were doing testosterone in the past and already has have a physical exam, a trophic testicle, will that work? Your therapy will work on them or that patient most likely is already beyond help, has happened? Yeah, so remember, the only way these therapies work is if your testicles work, right? So all they are trying to do is either rev up the production from the testicle or stop the breakdown of testosterone that the testicle is producing. So if the testicles cannot produce, they can't produce. And I tell patients, the older you are, the greater the apoptosis of the Leydig cells within the testicle, and you have less Leydig cells. So the older you are, the less likely you are to respond to any of these types of medications. And at some point, uh, you're just going to have to switch over to testosterone if you want to have this as your form of therapy. And a patient that has never been treated with testosterone, has low T symptoms, wants to preserve fertility, what are the options? Yeah, so I will tell them that I, I think patients respond best to HCG. I think that patients respond second best to Clomid. Clomid sometimes hard to get, so we now use N-Clomid, which is compounded off-label. And then the third option is anastrozole. Why? But most patients uh, like Clomid because it's a pill, it's not an injection, and it's cheap. But the problem with Clomid is the following. The way Clomid works is it blocks estrogen receptors centrally in the brain. When it blocks the estrogen receptor, then that blocks the negative feedback and you increase LH and FSH. And that's great. But what happens is many men will have a good testosterone level, but they'll say, I have no desire for sex. My libido is low. And remember what I said earlier is that men need estrogen. So he has the estrogen, but he can't see it in the brain because all the receptors are blocked. Right, And so we call this a discrepancy effect. You can take that same patient who has an 800 testosterone on Clomid, put him at exogenous testosterone injections, put him back at 800, and now he'll say, I feel it. My libido is better, sexual function is better. We see that quite a bit. And so you don't get that with HCG because HCG bypasses the brain and it, HCG is just simply an LH analog, goes directly to the testicles, stimulates the Leydig cells to produce more testosterone. So that's why patients tend to feel more symptomatic improvement on HCG. But again, it's expensive. It's an injection. Has to be done several times a week. Like you mentioned, so first choice, HCG, and then Clomid if they don't want to inject themselves. Exactly. Now, remember, there are other options, not medical options, but lifestyle. I told you about weight loss. There has been a big movement in the United States for using semaglutide for weight loss. I don't know if you've seen that, so I'm sure you have. So. Yeah. And these patients come in and their endogenous testosterone does go up quite a bit after they've lost significant amounts of weight. So that's uh, weight loss. We do know that improving sleep, there's some studies looking at CPAP machines and improving sleep apnea, which can potentially improve serum testosterone values. Exercise has been shown, but the most profound, and even varicose here. Now, I don't advocate fixing varicose for testosterone. I want to be very clear. But they have been shown to increase the endogenous testosterone by about 100 nanogram per deciliter in several studies. So if someone did have a varicose repair and they did sleep, fix their sleep apnea and they did lose some weight, now you start adding it all up. Now you have a person who has a normal serum testosterone. So that will be helpful. But the only problem is that most of my patients say, I don't want to do the work, just give me the pill. You know, it's like, just give me the pill. I say, fine, I get it, but you could do the work and it would make a difference. And you mentioned the pill in terms of Clomid that he, some patients like it because it, be, it being a pill versus an injection. Now in the market, there's a few oral pills out there, right? Right. So what's the difference between a couple of years ago that we didn't have that many in the market uh, recently? Yeah. And now we have three in the market. Yeah. So you got to remember that there's a long history behind this. So the testosterone was invented in the 1930s. And it was also, Rusica invented the oral testosterone formulation in the 1930s. The problem was if you give someone oral testosterone, it gets degraded very quickly by the liver and it's gone. So what they did in the 30s was they methylated it. They meth put a methyl component on the testosterone so it would stay around. The problem with that is that when the testosterone went through the liver, it caused liver toxicity. Hepatotoxicity, even liver cancer implicated as well. 
So for decades, all providers thought that if I give oral testosterone, I'm going to cause liver damage and liver cancer. And there was a fear. Well, in the 1970s, there came out a medication called Andriol, which was the first testosterone undecanoate. Why was this different? It wasn't methylated. It's called undecanoate. And it was actually bypassed the liver and it goes through the lymphatics, right? So it actually was very popular. But the only issue with undecanoate was that it had to be taken three to four times a day, had to be taken with a fatty meal. And so that can be kind of cumbersome, right? But you finally have an oral that has no liver toxicity whatsoever. And what's so interesting is that Andriol medication made it throughout the world. It was available in China. It's available in Canada. It's available in Europe. You can go to Australia. But it never got FDA approved in the United States. Never got approved, you know? So in 2019, the U.S., we got our first oral testosterone and decanoate. So Claris came out with theirs in 2019. And then in 2022, which was three years later, in the same year, we got two new testosterone products. And so now Kaisatrex is the newest testosterone product. Uh, it's by Marius Pharmaceuticals. There's been some changing of some of the older oral products. Now, uh, Talmar purchased their product from Jatenzo, and uh, Halazyme now has the Talando product as well. So we have three orals. What's nice about these new orals is that they uh, are only twice a day. So that's a big plus, right? And you don't have to take them with a fatty meal. You can just take it with a meal, which is really nice as well. So with a meal, twice a day. And, you know, Americans like pills. They were used to taking pills. They have pill boxes. They're used to taking a morning and evening dose. So this seems to be very easy to just add this to their regimen of taking pills as well. But the levels on the orals are very good. And, you know, there's no hepatotoxicity. So we don't have to worry about any liver damage again with this. Now, what's interesting in 2015, the FDA did require that all testosterone products do hypertensive testing. So there is a slight increased risk in hypertension. So you just monitor the blood pressure, but the hypertension risk is pretty low. You'll see about maybe a five millimeter increase in, in mercury of systolic. And what's really nice about the orals is that they have one of the lowest rates of erythrocytosis. So, you know, think about this. When the hematocrit gets a little high, above 54, there's a theoretical increased cardiovascular risk. And if you have someone on an injectable, their risk of erythrocytosis can be as high as 67% in one of the studies that we published. So one trick that you can do is get them off the injectable, and I used to switch them to a gel because the rate of erythrocytosis was about 12%, pretty low. But the orals are even lower. It's about 5%. So if someone is suffering from erythrocytosis, elevated red blood cell count, just switch them from the injectable down to the oral, and you'll drop that erythrocytosis significantly. And the reason for that is the spike? That's part of it. I, actually, you're right. So I think that we're not getting those high sustained spikes because remember on the injectables, if I take someone, so I like giving injectable testosterone, I do sub-Q. And once we started giving sub-Q twice a week instead of once a week, the erythrocytosis rate goes down. So you take the same dose, 100 milligrams a week, but if you give 50 milligrams on Sunday, 50 milligrams on Thursday, the erythrocytosis rate goes down. You don't see a crash towards the end of the week. So we tend to like to split our doses. Because remember, so testosterone peaks in 24 hours. So most patients, when do they want the testosterone? They want it Monday morning and they want it on Friday for the weekend, right? So that's why we give it Sunday, Thursday. So sometimes patients don't want to get injections. How do you tell them, hey, and sometimes the, the primer was doing once every two weeks. Yeah. So how do you change that to, hey, we're going to, instead of once every two weeks, we're going to do twice a week? Yeah. Couple ways you can do it. One, if they want to do it twice a week, we have to let them know at first it's sub Q. So sub Q goes a long way, right? Because people think, I say, you don't have to use a big needle and you don't have to stick the needle in your muscle. Oh, okay. So that's very good. What I found is that the 25 gauge needle, five eighths inch, one cc syringe is perfect to draw up the solution and it's small enough not to cause pain. You can inject with the same one. Sometimes people say, I'd like to draw up with an 18 gauge needle and inject with a 27 gauge. That's fine too. Because remember, we're only injecting small amounts. It's only 0.25 cc's, 0.25 cc's. So it's a very small amount. So typically patients say, oh, you're telling me that uh, it's not a big needle. I can do it sub-Q. I can do it twice a week. So that tends to catch their interest. Particularly, think about this. Let's say they uh, have erythrocytosis and they have to donate blood every two months. They'd much rather inject twice a week than donate blood every two months. You know, So that may be another uh, way to convince them to use it. Yeah, because you have to donate blood and then you have to also get blood drawn out for the labs. Yes. For follow-up of the testosterone. 
I think it's a big hassle. So either switch the formulation. One other thing, because we just brought this up, if you do have somebody that does develop erythrocytosis, their red blood cell count goes up, we typically ask them to donate when the hematocrit is at 51. I don't want to wait to 54, so I have them donate 51. I like to drop it down below 48. And they typically donate one pint a once a week. They split it by a week. I don't want them to get hypotensive. So we just wait a week and donate the next pint. And on these patients, I hope the take-home message everyone gets this is that make sure you screen the patient for sleep apnea because many of them have occult sleep apnea. That's where they're getting the erythrocytosis. Patients with a sleep apnea are much more sensitive to testosterone in terms of developing erythrocytosis and they're typically hypoxic at night. So get a sleep study on these patients that have to keep donating. It seems now I need a, a, a sleep specialist next to the office because right. with testosterone and also patients with nocturia. Yeah, that's true too. Great treatment for nocturia is treat the sleep apnea. You know that. I mean, it's yeah. a great treatment. And it doesn't have to be the classic patient with obesity. I've yeah. seen a lot of patients with sleep apnea, skinny guys have upper respiratory symptoms and, you know, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, but, but I, I do see a lot of patients with sleep apnea. Yeah, very important. In terms of the pills, is there, in terms of preservation of fertility, is that something that happens with pills or not really? You know, I always thought that it does. And I'm trying to conduct a study now looking at that because I think that, so let's be clear, exogenous testosterone has been related to infertility. So if you take, if someone on this podcast is trying to conceive and have a child, you would want to stay away from exogenous testosterone. Several years ago, the nasal formulation, the testo, in a trial that came out of the University of Miami showed that maybe it doesn't decrease sperm production if you take it. So, I, you know, I don't want everyone to think, oh, I'm going to do the nasal and everything will be fine, but it may not decrease sperm production uh, as much as other formulations. And so it's an option. But I do think that there is a potential that the orals may not either decrease sperm production. And so that's currently something I'm working on right now, just to look and see if it has an effect. I think we may be surprised. One other thing that you may see in the community is that some patients will get HCG with testosterone because remember, HCG may help preserve testicular function while you're getting the exogenous testosterone and not take that much of a hit on uh, decreasing your sperm count. And remember, many men just take it to preserve testicular volume. They don't want atrophy. So that may be another reason why they take the HCG. And you mentioned that the patient uh, that is taking the natestos, for example, is the reason behind that is the, I mean, or, or your theories behind lower spikes compared to the injections? Yeah, in the testo, the way it works is that the spikes are rapid. So if you look at the Natesto spike, it's like literally an hour, it's up and down. And when I first initially looked at that, I thought, wow, how can patients feel good when there's barely any testosterone in the body? It's just these rapid spikes and it comes right back down and they're getting symptomatic improvement. And later I learned that, you know, what happens is when that testosterone binds to the androgen receptor, its activity goes on for hours. It can go on for much longer than what you see is in the blood. I don't have to have that serum blood level elevated in order to get the benefits of the androgen receptor and the androgen binding, right? And so patients do see improvement, but I, I think that rapid in and out of the bloodstream does help protect the pituitary from getting suppression. And I do think there is a potential that the orals may offer the same thing. And I think with that test, I think it's like three times a day. Yeah, two, yeah, need to DITID, you're exactly right. And going back to that patient that goes to the office with symptoms, is there a patient that is not a candidate for testosterone replacement? I think the biggest one is infertility. If someone says to me that I am planning on having children in the future, I really try, obviously try to avoid giving it to them. And I really try to avoid giving it to young patients, you know, because I think about it. I mean, if you're, you know, 25 years old and I'm going to suppress your access today, what's the end game? I'm going to treat you for life on testosterone when there are many ways I can raise your natural endogenous testosterone. There are many times where I can give a patient Clomid, a young man, Clomid. Remember the way it works is it increases LH and FSH, and then you can stop the Clomid after several months, say three to six months. And some of these men will continue to produce testosterone. And so I really don't want to, if you, I guess we use the word hook them on testosterone yeah. at such a young age. Now, look, it's reversible. That's true. But there's no guarantee that I can get you back to the level you started with. So someone say, well, Dr. Kerry, you know, I can, you can reverse it and I'll go back. I can get, start making testosterone or you can reverse it and I can start making sperm again. That is true. 
I can reverse it and you can start making sperm again, but there's no guarantee that I can get you to the level you started with. If you started with 120 million per ml and you are now at 20 million per ml, that is true. I did reverse it, but you're far less fertile than you started with. I'm sure you see this patient, for example, a patient that 25, you mentioned 25 year old, is healthy, goes to the gym every day, uh, eats right, minimal body fat index, and they still have low T mm. and say, doctor, I'm doing everything right. Yeah. What, 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 and I mean, what are the options for that patient? It's, I mean, just cl either Clomid, HCG, or, or just yeah. us. I mean, first you want to find out why, you know, why someone's so young and healthy as it always doesn't make sense. But there's a large portion of these young patients that's idiopathic, cause unknown. It is. So again, we can give them HCG, Clomid uh, are my two go-to. But one comment. In 2015, the FDA changed the indication for testosterone therapy. So if you open the package insert for any testosterone product, you will read that it's indicated for primary hypogonadism, and they list all the things like testis tumor, testis failure. Secondary hypogonadism, they list pituitary tumor, injury to the pituitary. But nowhere in the indication of the package insert does it say ED or low libido. It doesn't say that. It has conditions, right? So only, and, and this is an important statistic, only 15% of the patients we treat have a true medical condition. 85% don't have a medical condition like a testis tumor. And so uh, in 2015, we, we used to call this, well, they're idiopathic. And that's right. But the reality is that, you know, majority of men we treat have an unknown cause, right? An unknown cause. Now, I think that diabetes Metabolic syndrome and obesity should be considered causes. They're not identified as causes, but I do think they're considered causes. But just realize that the majority of patients are treated off-label. Why is that important? Because many insurance companies love it because they don't have to pay for the drug if you're treating them off-label. And so they say, I'm sorry, we're not paying for it. And that's why the compounding pharmacies got very busy because uh, you know compounders are, um, are very cheap. They're cheap and also it takes time away from the office. So I'm sure you're, you're in your office. There's people, it just takes time, a lot of time getting the insurance to try to cover some, oh, yeah. some of the inject, injections, pills or whatever. And the patient just waits a couple of months until they can get some treatment. Sometimes after three, four months, the insurance just keeps saying, yes, we need more information. Yeah. We need more information. We need... And at the end of the day, yeah, it's easier just to send the patient to a to a, a compounding pharmacy. Or you could just pay cash. I mean, if, if the drug has a reasonable price, and you can just pay cash and not have to deal with insurance. That's also very helpful. It just, you know, that depends on, you know, what you have. And sometimes even with the insurance, the copay might be still very high, even yeah. if they approve it. I agree. Jose, one more thing we didn't mention, but I got to mention this. In June, last month, a large trial came out called the Traverse Trial. And I was involved in this trial. And we started this trial in May of 2018. And we finished in June of 2023. So it was a long trial, five-year trial. And so this trial was, primary endpoint was looking at uh, MACE. And so and actually we started in 2017, I, I apologize, so it's five years, but it's looking at MACE and it showed no increase in cardiovascular risk. So I think that's really important because many times I get clinicians that come to me and say, I heard testosterone causes a heart attack based on all the yeah. hype that they heard in 2015. And the Traverse trial finally puts that to rest. You know, I think that's very, very important to realize that. I mean, it, it was a large study, a little over 5,000 patients, but finally we have a large randomized placebo controlled trial looking at testosterone and MACE. Many other studies are gonna come out of this, so you should know, looking at prostate cancer risk, sexual function, looking at anemia, bone fractures, diabetes. So very exciting. These studies are, sh are, sh are gonna come out shortly. That's extremely good because we definitely need that advertisement or that, that positive feedback in terms of the research because like you mentioned, after the, the cardiovascular events came out in 2015, a lot of the primary physicians, which are usually the gatekeepers of these patients, they already, the, the patients come scared yeah. to the office because the primary say, hey, you shouldn't be on testosterone, you're going to have a heart attack. And sometimes it's difficult for us or it takes time for us to convince, hey, you, you should be fine. Yeah, I think it's the largest study we've ever had on testosterone, randomized placebo-controlled trial. It's a big, big effort and uh, just a great study. And I think, again, more to come on that. I think more to come also on prostate cancer. We didn't talk about that, but you know that was the main concern when I started my residency, and now that's kind of put to rest. You know, the AUA guidelines in 2018 state that you know there's no men should be aware that there's no increased risk of prostate cancer and giving testosterone. 
but they still say it is controversial or risk unknown if he has a history of prostate cancer, meaning radical prostatectomy or radiation. But I do think that most urologists are getting more and more comfortable treating men with a history of prostate cancer. I think that the one they have more difficulty with is obviously sometimes active surveillance. Yeah, I do have a patient that on active surveillance of three plus three, five percent core. But yeah, uh, I do have patients that are on remission that had radiation after, uh, and I feel completely safe after radical prostatectomy and a PSA with zero. Mm-hmm. But definitely those patients with radiation are a little bit more challenged. That PSA never goes down to zero. But the patients need it, and it's quality of life. I mean, if, if, if they have depressed mood, they have low energy low libido, they don't want to do anything. I mean, I don't think that's living either. Yeah, you know, the hardest patients to treat are really the ones with radiation because with the radiation and androgen deprivation therapy. So let's say someone had high grade, high Gleason score, got androgen deprivation therapy. So, you know, there's this concept called the androgen saturation model. And so essentially what it means is that when your levels of testosterone are low, your PSA correlates with changes in testosterone. So we think the saturation points around 250. So if a man comes in with a testosterone of 110 after radiation and I start him on testosterone, his PSA will go up and it will go up. And if you believe in the saturation model, once it gets to about 250 or above, it'll plateau. So that first PSA, when they come back in six weeks, everyone's freaking out. They're like, oh my God, this yeah. is, is a biochemical recurrence. I tell patients it's gonna go up, then we'll recheck it again. And after we check it again, it tends to find its own plateau. Now that's, again, what we do in our practice. I typically have patients who have radiation. In this case, I'll wait 18 months before I treat them and I will biopsy them. I'll biopsy them if they want to be treated. But the radiated patient with androgen deprivation therapy is, I think, one of the hardest patients to treat uh, with testosterone and it involves a lot of counseling and making sure that they're really informed on the risks and benefits. And in those patients, do you, let's say you're, you do the biopsy, there's no cancer, would you treat them as the same as a patient cancer naive in terms of treatment options or you go specific for something different? Yeah, two different things I would do is I wouldn't give them a long acting. So I wouldn't give them Testafel because I can't take it out of the body. So I don't want the the PSA to go, they get concerned. So I use a short acting and I think that's very important. And the only other difference is that I would monitor the PSAs a little bit more often just to show them that there is no concern, no increase. So Instead of doing it every six months, I may do it every three months for the first year, showing that there's no issues, then start spacing it out. I definitely would not use a long acting in this patient. You mentioned the pellets, and we didn't mention the pellets before. What about pellets? I mean, you mentioned Testopel, but I know there's a lot of offices out there using different kinds of pellets yeah. that are compounding, and they usually don't even care about your, your, your testosterone. Can you talk about a little bit about that? Yeah. So we, you know, we typically use FDA, the, the Testapel, which is commercially available, yeah. but some patients don't have coverage and some states will only allow six pellets, which doesn't really do much. So in those states, or if the patient doesn't have coverage, we offer a compounded version of the pellets. The difference between the Testapel, Testapel comes at 75 milligrams per basically pellet, but the compounded ones, we use are 100 milligrams per pellet. So I'll use 12 testapels or uh, nine compounded, which is essentially 900 milligrams either way, you know? And so I think we looked at this and we did some studies. We don't see a significant difference in levels. Patients tend to respond to testosterone, whether it's compounded or it's a pellet. You just got to make sure that you're getting your compounded pellet from a reliable source, right? That's very important. Uh, and there are many compounders now that are FDA certified. So, you know, they're getting very high quality. But if you are using compounded pellets, make sure you check the testosterone levels frequently at the beginning to make sure these patients are responding because, you know, not all compounders are the same. You mentioned the, the lab. So, so and you mentioned that you wanted the patients to be in the upper quarter. How often do you repeat the labs? So typically it depends on what type of formulation they're on. If they're on a gel, it's typically about two weeks. Typically on an injectable, I may have them come back in four weeks. Now, it's not that it has to be exactly two weeks. It can be any time, two weeks or after. Let's say he says, I'm going on vacation. I came back for a month. No problem. I just want some time where they can get to their new baseline level. Now, there's a controversy here. There are many different ways to check the testosterone level. And I'll use an example with injectable. A lot of endocrinologists like to check the mid of the week. So if he's getting one injection in a week or one injection every two weeks, they'll check it at the halfway mark. I prefer to check it at the trough. So I tell them, but the day before you come in, I'd like you to check your blood so I can see how low you are because I'm not so concerned sometimes about how high the levels get because he can get erythrocytosis and he can, but if the trough is low, let's say the trough is 110, 
well, clearly that's not going to work. So I tried to make sure that my trough is in a reasonable range. If my trough is at 300 or 400, I know the peak can't be that high anyway. So that's really important to me to check it at the trough. And then once you establish that that patient is in, a, in the ideal medication or dose, you will go every six months? Then I, or, exactly right. Every six months. The guidelines say you can check every year. I think that's a bit long. You know, like what yeah. if they get erythrocytosis or what if something happens or levels? Not, so I think every six months, if I can just check the blood to make sure they're fine, I think it goes a long way. And are you checking liver enzymes all the time? Every six months? You month? don't need to. It's not indicated. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. even with the oral testosterones, you don't have to check the liver enzymes. You know, uh, that was only with the methylated. So I think the take home is that, you know, that stigma that oral causes hepatotoxicity is not true. You don't need to check the LFTs. So you're doing hemoglobin, hematocrit, testosterone, free testosterone, estradiol. No, that's exactly it. So my, my workup on a repeat visit is T free TE, H and H, and PSA. So those are the five that I get on every single patient when they come for follow up. Yeah, so I think it's, I mean, that's just the standard. You know, we, you know, a lot of women also take this too. You know that. I mean, testosterone is extremely effective in women and pim women also use pellets, but it's off-label in women. So a lot of the women also will use injections, you know, compound injections as well. And you treat them the same? I mean, twice a week, a lower dose? Yeah, so the, the dose for a woman, again, this is off-label, is one-tenth what we use in a man, one-tenth. But I've found that when it comes to libido, Uh, testosterone is extremely effective in women. And a lot of the women don't mind injecting sub-Q once a week. Some use a cream, some use a pellet. It just varies whatever they want, but those are the three most common ones that we use. We'll compound a cream, we'll compound a testosterone formulation, or we'll use a pellet. But again, all off-label, but very effective. Are you seeing more female patients in your practice for testosterone? Yeah, you know, what, what happens is I'm starting to see them as a couple. So the patient will come in and say, you know what, I'm doing great, but now I have no one to have sex with. I mean, we haven't had sex in 10 years and you got me these great erections, this great libido, but I, I'm kind of stuck. So many, many years ago, I went out to California, did some, spent some time with Erwin Goldstein, who I think is the godfather of female sexual dysfunction. He's amazing. Took some courses at Ishwish, which is a phenomenal society that teaches about female sexual dysfunction. And so we've been treating women. I've been treating them now for 16 years because it's a couple's disease. There's no point in raising the libido in one partner and not the other, because that is a setup for a conflict. If you're going to keep both libidos low, that's fine. Leave them both low. That's okay. If you want them both high, but you don't want one high and one low. And so we have been treating couple. We, I don't like, you know, I think by treating one patient and not asking about the couple, you're missing the boat, you know? Well, Dr. Kara, anything else you want to add? I think we covered a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of things today. No, this was really good. I really appreciate the opportunity and thank you for having me on the show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.